Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Join us this Saturday for an all-new episode of The Athletic NBA Show. Saturday Slam and Jam, hosted by me, Andrew Schlecht. I'll be joined by my co-hosts Alex Spears and many of the athletic beat writers that you know and love. We will recap the week of the NBA, play some NBA trivia, and just overall talk about the league that we love most. So while you're flipping your flapjacks, tending to your yard, or just sipping your coffee on Saturday morning, listen to Saturday Slam and Jam on the Athletic NBA Show. Want an easy way to stay up to date with the latest news and trends in the NBA? Listen to the NBA Daily Ding podcast Monday through Friday. Wake up and turn up the NBA Daily Ding to stay informed on all things NBA here at The Athletic and wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Athletic NBA Show Monday through Friday on The Athletic Podcast Network. Coming up on today's show, we try to figure out what the hell is happening in Indiana. And then we talk about the teams that we're definitely sleeping on. This is Nerdish You Wrote with your host, Dave Dufour. With Mo DeKeel. Are you ready to be entertained? And Seth Partnow. Hello and welcome to the Athletic NBA Show. It's Friday. That's right. This is Dave. It's Nerdish You Wrote. I got Seth and Mo here. And we've got a special guest because, look, the Pacers are having, I, I don't know, a weird couple of days and... and we're recording this on Thursday afternoon, so if anything happens between Thursday afternoon and Friday morning, I apologize for us not guessing in advance that it would happen. But we all saw, you know, them lose to the Kings and, the, you know, their assistant coach yelling at, at one of the players, and it seems like it's a mess. And unfortunately, they're not playing well because we've been waiting all year to talk to our guest, Caitlin Cooper from Indy Cornrows about the Pacers and oh wow they have this new offense and Nate Bjorkren is this offensive genius and he's going to bring some of this Nick Nurse stuff to Indy and it looked great at first and I mean it was like what the second week of the season Caitlin that I, I hit you up I was like hey we're going to want to talk about the Pacers and and I apologize that uh, while they were good we didn't get a chance to do it and then they make a trade for Karis LeVert and Oladipo's out and so we're like okay we have to reset Let's circle back in about four weeks, see how they look with this new, you know, the new guy in there. And of course, Karis LeVert had had the cancer issue and, and missed a bunch of time. So we've basically been putting this off eh, about six months. So, Caitlin, welcome to Nerder She Wrote, finally. <laughs> I, I swear, this is like the we have the longest DM exchange ever. Just trying to get a podcast together. So welcome. Yeah, we do. And it's fitting because it feels like anytime I'm on a podcast, because I don't do a lot of them, I generally think less of me is more. But anytime I'm on a podcast, <laughs> it's whenever the Pacers are at their absolute lowest. And then I get to come on and be the absolute downer and tell you all the reasons that they're bad and all the stuff that's going wrong. And then people get to tell me how negative I am. So this is fitting timing. So you're the you're the uh, you're the grim reaper behind the Knicks bench from uh, from the Reggie Miller documentary is what you're saying. That's tough. Yeah, yeah, clearly, clearly. 
<laughs> so what the hell is going on? Okay. Like, so w- what is going on? Because the first, you know, the, the short training camp, the first couple of weeks of the season, the honeymoon phase, everything seemed great. All of the reporting coming out of there was, oh, wow, things are so different under this Nate versus Nate McMillan. And it seems like the wheels just kind of fell off. Like the reporting has been pretty unbelievable today. Jake Fisher over at Bleacher Report had a, had a damning report about Nate Bjorkren and sort of the fiefdom that he's running to. I mean, I can't come up with a better word for it. But have you seen any signs of this this season? Because it seems like they've done an okay job of hiding it. From the outside observer. Right. So can I give you a little bit of a timeline here of just a couple of red flags that showed 100%. up? 100%. Please, so, let's do it. I would say when he was introduced, I was on a bit of a high thinking, you know, this is going to be good. I can see how some of these bold tactics from Nick Nurse might be pretty decent. And what I had seen of his G League games, I think offensively, he was going to have a lot to offer. I thought that was going to fit. When he started describing the defense, he said, you know, I want it to be... I would describe it as aggressive and we're going to change defenses and change defenses frequently. And everything about it sounded like it was the Raptor system. And immediately in the aftermath of that, I wrote, can the Pacers do a whirling approach like the Raptors are doing? And I wasn't feeling very uh, positive about it. And then when preseason comes, they literally come out in the first game against Cleveland and they're three quarter court or full court pressing off of every make with TJ McConnell and even Malcolm Brogdon, which I mean, that just doesn't seem like a fit for Malcolm Brogdon at all to me. And they get blown out in that game. And then at the end of it, uh, and now looking back at it, I'm like, yeah, that's more telling than I thought it was. The starters are out of the game at the end of a bench. And he comes down there with his iPad and it's like a blowout game. And he's showing the starters like extra stuff on the iPad. And when he walks away, there's kind of like a reaction, like, you know, what's this guy doing? And so that was a little bit iffy for me, but then the season starts and the defense doesn't look that bad. So I'm like, you know, maybe I need to revise my thinking here. They're, they're, funneling a lot of stuff to the rim, but Miles Turner's holding that percentage really low. They're not allowing a lot of threes, even though teams are shooting the three against them pretty well. And maybe that's luck. I don't know. So I look into it and I'm like, well, they're switching recovery pads pretty good on both the strong and the weak side. Like their rotations are decent. Victor seems to fit the system pretty well with his ability to play in the gap. So I wrote that piece. And then that was before they were really mixing in a lot of their zone looks. And then when the zone stuff came, I don't know. Like I've written about the zone. I don't know how many times, like I don't like being this person. That's kind of like every week, every week <laughs> I'm writing some piece about like, what is going on here? What type of defense are they even playing? Like I have a long thread on Twitter that it's like, I've called a mystery sucker possessions. Cause I don't know how many people know this, but like dumb, dumb suckers, when they have mystery suckers that they produce the first flavor, like when they're making green apple, they produce these. And then to, in order to avoid like cleaning the molds, they put in the next flavor. And then it's because it's a mixture. They just call it a mystery sucker. And that's what the Pacers look like at times. Like they're, they're going from two, three zone into box and one or whatever. And half the team will be in two, three and the other half is running box and one. There's at least one of these possessions every game where you do not know what type of defense they're playing. And I think I kind of, oh. well, hold on. That's when they're playing defense because I mean, the thing that started that whole argument that we just watched in Sacramento was that it, it felt like uh, a couple of guys just oh, yeah. decided they're oh, yeah. done. And I think some of that's a product too of when you're mixing defenses a lot, y- you know, like you kind of, you're going to have that miscommunication. Mm-hmm. Like there's an, there's an art form to how you're going to set that up to make sure all five guys are on the same page. Cause as you said, like if half the guys are in a two, three zone and you have two other guys in a box and one, Kind of screwed. 
what other signs were there aside from the defense just kind of jumping all over the place and nobody being on the same page? I mean, there's just – you just look at the sidelines sometimes, and it just seems like – I mean, Karis LeVert, after they lost to the Hornets, made a comment about how, you know – people aren't cheering us on from the sidelines. Like we're not feeling the energy from our team. And, and then they go into San Antonio and they end up winning, which San Antonio's defense was not great in that game. But um, yeah, I mean, and just the vibes that the Hornets overall give, it's a pretty big contrast there. Like, I, I don't know. I mean, the fact that Karras is willing to say that on record and he hasn't even been playing that long, I mean, in theory. So yeah, stuff like that, I would say is pretty concerning. I mean- Seth, Mo, you guys both worked for NBA teams, and I'm sure that some of this is just about, you know, it's a long season, and you're around each other all the time, and you're traveling, and this year in particular, there's a pandemic, guys can't get out and do as much, you know, there, there's all the protocols, there's all the testing, you know, is this a situation where maybe it's being overblown, and it's bad, because maybe the surrounding circumstances have made it worse and, and, and they can fix this. I, I don't know. It, it looks pretty awful to no, me. I think, I, I think you hit on it that it's always important. It's a long season. You're spending more time with these, you know, this, this traveling pirate ship of 40 or so people. Um, and if that's, if, if there's some interpersonal stuff going on, like that's, it, that can get pretty rough. Uh, winning helps with that, but it doesn't solve it all the time. And so that's why this this I think we've talked about this a couple times early in the season about Charlotte is having that you know I like to call it team mo the momentum on the sideline of everyone being up and happy and and stuff like that. And it sometimes it seems forced, but then you get in it and you realize how important it is for everyone to just reverberate the energy back to the people on the court because it's. Otherwise, it's just it's long and a drain, and it can feel pointless if you're not enjoying it. I mean, it's interesting because the the topic or the in that article, you know, the the talk at the start of the season was how infectious Oregon's energy is, and and so positive and things like that. And it just sounds like, damn, like he kind of got worn down as the the season has gone on, and his actual personality has come out, you know, whereas before it was a facade and he was trying to, to, it's one of my favorite phrases, fake it till you make it. So he was just trying to fake all of this and he, the, the, the real Bjorgen couldn't help himself, you know, and, and, and ended up showing really what he was. And because it's such a long season, you can't really keep that up. You know, you got to be who you are. And it's, it, it is the type of style that would probably rub people the wrong way. I mean, the stuff about, you know, the, embarrassing your own staff you know equipment managers trainers and things like that that never goes over well that doesn't go over well with the players when you're killing in any walk of life it doesn't go over well right i I judge you how you treat other people in particular the ones that can't do anything for you and so when i read stories like this i just think this guy is an asshole plain and simple and and listen i I know this is one side of the story i'm sure we're going to hear more but there's just never an excuse to yell at someone who works for you. I, I just I, – I, there you can't reconcile that. And I don't care about sports culture. I've coached basketball and never at this level. Uh, you've been in the NBA and you've been you, – you worked, Mo, with the greatest coach to ever coach basketball. And I'm sure you got chewed out, but were you ever demeaned publicly oh, no, no, by no, this no, guy? No, 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 no. Exactly. There's a, there's, there's a difference. And I'm not saying you can't take your coaches aside and have a heated conversation because sometimes it needs to happen. Adults argue. It's normal. 
But the stories that that we read today, I, I I'm sorry, that's not normal. And it's not just it's not just bad on a, on like a you know on a human level. It's, it's it's ineffective. You talk about getting after the the equipment people. Like that's the that's kind of for the players. That's like the little brother, or little sister. Like you're you're as as Mo said, you're you're just you're making enemies unnecessarily for no reason because the players are going to see that. Man, it's, 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 what is this guy doing? Um, and and you know, especially for especially, I would say for for a rookie head coach who did not play in the league, who you know, that's sort of two strikes against him as far as as sort of that uh, that, that credibility with the players, especially kind of a, a somewhat experienced team like the Pacers have. Well, let's think ahead, Caitlin, because I, I think that. It looks like this is probably gonna gonna end. I, I'm assuming he's gonna finish out the season, um, and, and maybe they're gonna make the play in. That's in doubt right now because Toronto is is still on their heels. They they play each other the last game of the year, yes. correct? Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, it's just this is just a it's a really crazy situation. But where does Indiana go from here? Because already you're hearing, well, you know, Mike D'Antoni was sort of the favorite before they decided to go the the Nick Nurse prodigy you know, that Nick Nurse coaching tree route. Do you feel like D'Antoni is the guy to bring in or, or are they looking for a, another first-time guy? I, I don't know that they'll go to another first-time guy. It's kind of a shame. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is throughout the search and whenever they announced the hiring, they kept saying that the most important thing was having a modern communicator. And, you know, and this is the person that they ended up with. So when I wrote most of my profiles, it's just from an X's and O's standpoint, because that's the way that I see the game. That's how I looked at Bjorkren. I mean, to me, they got to find somebody who's going to be able to communicate with these guys at this level, no matter who's going to be in the locker room next year. Like this is a carryover from the year prior. I mean, not that Nate McMillan was treating people like this, but that was part of the reason that they moved on because he wasn't effectively communicating with guys in the way that they wanted it to be. And then, you know, this is where they are. So it's tough to say. I mean, I don't know any of these people personally to know what but if it's if that is Mike D'Antoni, if that's his personality to be in the locker room and manage those types of personalities or, you know, they had a very long list of people. I mean, they interviewed 20 candidates, which is what kind of makes this even worse. I mean, and not to mention that you had T.J. Warren in your own locker room to consult with. I mean, it, I, I think that the Zoom aspect made it harder. I mean, you're obviously not seeing these people face to face to get to know them better, but. Um, to be able to ask TJ Warren, at least how it's reported in that story to say, Hey, what, what type of person was this in Phoenix or how did he treat people? Seems like that would have been a pretty easy first step. It, it just seems like with their processes, they were just solely focused on the X's and O's and not looking at any other aspect. And, and it's not like his X's and O's have been truly amazing as you highlighted with the defense, but they just never looked into the other stuff. And like, you said it, but I just think it's unforgivable. You have a guy in your locker room who's coached, who's been coached by him. How do you not ask him? I mean, just as a video guy, when we get a new guy traded to us, I try to go to the player going like, yo, do you have the other team's playbook? Like I, it's, it's try to, I try to get like what information, like we're going to play your, your former team. What information do you have? And I'm doing it as an idiot video guy. How the front office doesn't go to it and going for a big higher situation, you know, like you got to Like it, it, it just, it blows my mind, you know, that that's something that they, they didn't do. Well, yeah, because 
Oh, sorry. Yeah, I mean, because when they announced it, I mean, we did a podcast at our website pretty shortly after, and I thought, you know, this must be the right choice because TJ Warren's on this team. And and beyond that, I, I think another warning sign, which gets bring up, brought up in the story, that night after he had done media availability, he did a radio tour, and he mentioned on there that he had known Chad Buchanan for 20 years. And, like, not that that's a terrible thing, but it, it kind of rubbed a little bit wrong that, like, it seemed like they had had this exhaustive search of all these candidates, but then you ended up with the guy that you knew for 20 years. So... The last point is, I think Mo hinted at this, but I think this is a problem we've seen in in sports hiring a lot. Is it seems like the only talk to people he had worked for, no one who had worked for him, and you know, I think we again, I, if we remember when the the Mets general manager got got let go earlier this year, it turned out oh wait, we've got to ask the people who worked for him how the experience was and then we hired him and then it, that blew up in their face. And I don't think I'm, I'm not making like a, you know, just being a jerk as a coach is not the same thing as, you know, being a, a villain, but it's, it's, you only find the, the, the face that someone shows up if that's all you ask. And that's not at all the, the most important relationship he's going to have because his most important relationship is going to be either down or sideways, however you want to term it to the players and you've done no kind of homework on that. Caitlin, as, as we sort of wrap up with the, the coaching part of this, I want to think about this roster and this team. This seems like sort of the end of the road. I, I don't know what's going to happen there, but they're going to have to, they're going to have to make some changes. I'm not sure what this team even looks like next season. Obviously, you know, we're thinking new coach, but is there a chance that one of Sabonis or Turner is gone? I mean, I thought that there was a good chance over the summer that Turner was, or I guess not the summer, but the fall off season that Turner might get moved. It feels like that situation is just fast approaching. now. Right. I mean, they, I mean, they said in the aftermath of that trade, not going through that they did everything they possibly could for it to happen. So obviously they tried to, to make a, a change there. Um, I thought at the trade deadline, because they had seen so little with Karras so far, that it's not because I believe in the pairing or believe in, in them being competitive with like Brooklyn or Philadelphia or something. But I thought that these last few games for after the trade deadline were going to be informative about how Karras worked with various pieces, how Karras worked with Malcolm Brogdon. Um, what differences the defense would make? Because, I mean, that's a big that's a big change from going from Victor to Karis LeVert. And if you're going to continue running this type of system, um, if I'm being honest, I don't think Sabonis at the four or the five is a good fit for this defensive system. I don't think that it's fair to be asking him to be racking up the highest defensive distance traveled in the NBA, to be exposing him to switches constantly, to be thinking he's going to help and fly up top and be hedging. And at the five spot, I mean, for all the good things that Miles does, depressing the field goal percentage at the rim, they give up the highest rim frequency in the NBA. And when Miles is on the floor, that's still third. Like they're just giving up, funneling so many shots to the basket. He doesn't have the wingspan to support that. But on the other side of the of that, um, I just think he does so many good things on the offensive end of the floor. I think he's super talented, and I don't think it's right to scapegoat him for why the defensive issues have gone that the way that they have. And and I think you can look back at that Miami Heat series and see all the different ways that the Pacers missed Sabonis when he wasn't out there. They missed his role gravity. They missed his ability to post switches whenever Miami was switching everything. They missed his ability to be able to make passes four on three and lubricate the offense. That would be hard for me to say, especially if it came down to like Nate Bjorkren and Sabonis. I'm not picking this defensive system over a two-time all-star. Like that's just not happening. So 
Um, it would depend a little bit on what are you getting in return for either one of those two players and how is that fit the other people are out there. But, um, I do think it matters that the pieces that they had before when Dan Burke was still coaching the the defense, they don't have Thaddeus Young or Corey Joseph or some of the other guys that made that work. And now you're trying to make this work with Ferris LeVert, who it's kind of tough to evaluate when he says things like, you know, my conditioning isn't quite there. I don't know what to expect from a guy who's coming back from something that's completely unprecedented health-wise. So I don't know how to completely evaluate it. I know that this sounds like a really big cop-out answer, but um, I think they have a limited series with ceiling with both bigs, but I don't know which direction you go there. Yeah, maybe maybe they can hire Nick Nurse. That that's the secret. If you want Nick Nurse coaching your team, I think you got to hire Nick Nurse. Well, Caitlin, have Nick Nurse's I, playbook. Look, I mean, there it down is. Down to a T. They already have. Give that. it to Mo. Mo will totally steal that playbook. He's happy to do it. Uh, Caitlin, thank you so much for for coming on the show. Like you're you're one of my favorite reads. I read just about everything you write. I don't even have to watch the Pacers because I can just read your stuff. So everybody check it out at IndyCornrows.com. Again, Caitlin, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. So we're about 10 days away from the end of the regular season. And somehow at this point in the year, we are still sleeping on the teams with the three best net ratings in the league. And I, I don't know why we're doing this. So guys, why don't we trust Utah, Milwaukee, and the Los Angeles Clippers. I can't figure it out. They've been consistent all season. The Jazz have all the indicators of an elite team. I mean, elite. They have they have a north of nine net rating at this point in the year. They've been winning games by double digits all year. They're blowing teams out. The Bucks are essentially doing what they've been doing, but mixing it up more, doing all the stuff that we complained they weren't doing. And now the Clippers look about as good as we expected them to look heading into last year's playoffs. So why aren't we talking about them more, Mo? Narratives. We're just playing the narrative games with all these guys. You know, it's we look at Utah and we go, we've seen this before, maybe not at this level of how well they're playing, but we've seen them, you know, look exactly the same. It's not like they've changed up much. And, you know, we have Utah, I disagree on. Right. I think they've changed a lot schematically. I mean, I feel like they're shooting a ton more threes, but I don't feel like it's, it's always been a heavy pick and roll game with Rudy Gobert there and, and, and things like that. I think there's been issues, but you know, with the Clippers, we're looking at how bad they were last season in the playoffs, blowing that three, one lead against Denver. And, you know, Paul George still hasn't even shaken off, you know, his performance in that series. And then, it, it, with Milwaukee, same thing, just stretch it out for the past two seasons is their playoff failure. So nobody wants to buy into them because they're like, oh, it's just going to be the same thing as last year. Feels like a lot of people are just writing off anything that, that Utah and Milwaukee in particular does because we've seen them have failures in the playoffs the last couple of years. I, I don't even think Utah, what they did last year, you could call it a failure. They got beat by a better team. Like the Nuggets were pretty damn good in the playoffs last year, Seth. I mean, I think Utah is a, is a good team. Yeah, no, they, they lost a, a, a game seven with a buzzer beater rimming out uh, in a, what was a, a weird, but close series. Um, the, like the, the, so yeah, but, it, but for them, it's also, it's just, it's just the, the number of years and, and it, it sort of, had, it, it always hinges on the, is Rudy Gobert good or not debate? And uh, 
you know, um, our, our colleague John Hollinger came out yesterday with his most underrated players in the NBA and the most underrated player he said, and I agree, is is Gobert. Um, because it, it, there's this notion that that he's a guy who's going to get played off the floor in the playoffs, which I frankly don't really think has ever happened. But it's it's the easy narrative because you see a team make it make a, a jump shot or two, and it's like oh, oh they got the big guy who can't come out of the paint. Um, when their problems in the playoffs have been much more on the offensive end um, o- over the years, um, and I think that's the part almost that that needs to get proven as much as as anything defensively is. Uh, last year aside, their their big problem has been they've they've devolved into a lot of ISO for Donovan Mitchell, and even last year too. For that matter, he just made every shot, and, and, and didn't the the, the 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 prior two years. And you know, Donovan Mitchell is, is an all star level player, but he's not Donovan. Take the ball and take us to the finals. Yeah, so. and I think sometimes what? one one thing with Utah and Rudy Gobert is he does kind of get unfairly blamed for their their defensive issues when it's like. Man, I don't know if they have enough wings that can defend the wings they're going to face in the West. You know, Royce O'Neal is probably their most is their best perimeter defender in terms of these wing guys, and you know they're going to face a, a Kawhi Leonard and Paul George at some point, or you know uh, having to figure out how they're going to guard LeBron. You know, when they play the Lakers, and the Lakers, that's the one series that does pro- pose a problem for Gobert because they've had success when they've put AD at the five you know, against Utah. And I think that's, and it's not because he can't guard other guys. It's just, you know, AD's one right, a top five, top 10 player in the league. <laughs> like yeah, It's not, exactly. it's not yeah, like, yeah. it's not uh, Daniel Tice is killing him. <laughs> yeah. I, I do love that, that a guy gets beat by like one of the 10 best players in the league, a couple of possessions and he's just trash. It's like Chris Paul, you know, is, is uniquely able to penetrate into the mid-range against Utah because they're going to give it to him, and he can make that shot. It doesn't mean that he's torching their defense. He's taking the shot that they're willing to give up, and he just, you know, it's Chris Paul. He's going to hit that shot. I still think Utah lives with Chris Paul taking that mid-ranger. I mean, at least in the regular season, which is what we're, we're basing what it's going to look like in the playoffs on. Like, people are saying, well, they clearly can't match up with the Suns. Because, you know, of what happened in the regular season. But we just watched the Bucks beat the Nets and no one's doing the same thing. Yeah, and and sticking with, with the U- Utah and like Chris Paul, like the teams have had some success recently just putting a, uh, a a bigger wing guy on him and saying, okay, hit that shot over a 6'9 guy. And, you know, I, I, I don't know if you'd want to have Joe Ingles or, or – or or Boyan Bogdanovich like they're all game, but uh, I think Joe Ingles gonna, is going to take that assignment if that's a series. Yeah, and, I, I and think if he's going to, and he can probably he can bother that right elbow jumper at least somewhat. I don't think I'd want to do that for a whole game. I I, I want to disagree with something Mo said before we move on though. Is I think that the the Lakers matchup is tough just because the Lakers are really good with Davis at center. I don't think that specifically. I, is is an unkind matchup for Gobert. I mean, but that's, I, you know, I, neither here nor there. I've I've just seen them enough when they when they've done yeah. it. Even last season, like last season, there was a game where the Lakers were getting killed, and it was during that era where it's like well, we don't want to play AD at the five, and then they put AD at the five, and yeah. it was like, I'm like, and this is why he has to play the five sometimes, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, but that, Utah that, plays that's more. That's more AD the five. I get it, than, but it, than, but it did. But what it did yeah. was it forced Gobert out and allows LeBron to go. 
You know, I mean, LeBron has an easier chance attacking the rim in that instance with Gobert, not in the paint. It's just that, I mean, it's a, it's, it was a product of it, you know, and I think that's kind of the, the thing that opens it up with AD at the five. I know what you're saying. They are really good when he's at the five, but I think that's because what, he, what, what it allows the other guys to get to do in the paint. So we feel like the Lakers, uh, the Lakers are the worst matchup for a lot of teams in the West. I think that we could probably go down the list and say that for just about any team. But I don't, I mean, Utah matches up pretty well against everybody who isn't the Lakers and the Clippers. I think. Because there aren't a lot of killer wings out there. But what they've got that I think is is interest, is going to be interesting to watch in the playoffs is they have relied so much on the shooting of their role players. And we know that usually in the playoffs that, that drops off. Can they withstand that? This is part of why I think them having the number one seed is so important. Utah reminds me of the Bucks from two years ago. Play one style, one way. If it's not working, do it harder, do it better. It's not a, there's not a lot of different ways. Now with Mitchell, then they'll go to the one-on-one stuff, but there's not a lot of other things there. In, in in the versatility pocket for Utah, and I think that's that's not why t- people are sleeping on them, but that's why I don't know how high their their championship ceiling is. But that's that's my issue with Utah. I just did a podcast with Sam Vecini on the Athletic Podcast Network, but you know it's it's that thing right there. Like that would be the thing I think that holds them back the most come uh, playoff time. I think the, the the counter to that is especially with with Mike Conley playing just much better this year than he did last year, and you know Jordan Clarkson has fallen off a little bit, and Joe Ingles having just a, a kind of a crazy season. Like, okay, they're going to be a heavy pick and roll team, but those are like four different styles of pick and roll. They can they can you know, okay, it's it's you know it's it's Gobert and Mitchell up at the top. They're just going to run a vanilla pick and roll up top and do that. If it's if it's Ingles are going to do something right elbow and have him getting to his left hand. And and so they can give different looks off of that, even though it's kind of the same thing. So that's maybe a little bit more versatility than, you know, here's here's old number one coming right down the pike. Fastball, fastball, fastball. So, OK, the, the jazz stuff kind of makes sense to me because we haven't seen they don't have an, a super elite guy. They don't have a top 10 player. But the Clippers do. And so I can't figure out why we aren't favoring the Clippers at all in this. A lot of people saying, wow, the Clippers don't want to see the Lakers in the first round. I say the opposite. I think the Lakers don't want to see the Clippers in the first round. I mean, especially, you know, when is LeBron coming back? What kind of condition is he going to be in? And the Clippers are awesome. How do you guys like Rondo for the Clippers? Has, has that done enough to to improve the playmaking for you to start picking them in the playoffs, Mo? Oh, I've been a big fan of the Rondo trade for them. This is the guy I've been saying they've needed a table setter, you know, even as early as last season. Just a guy that can help with the ball handling, the playmaking, take that off of Kawhi's plate, take that off of PG's plate, have a guy with the IQ level to know like, hey, we need to get this guy more involved in the offense. We need to get more touches here and things like that. I think Rondo's a huge pickup for them. I I agree with you, Dave. The Lakers don't want to play them in the first round, but the Clippers don't want to play them in the first round either because that's just a, a, a complete 
uh, wild card. You know what I mean? That's 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 a crosstown rivalries in college. Anything could happen deal situation. I think they they want to try to delay that as long as possible as well. And I think the ultimate thing is this team's really good. They got to get a little bit healthier. We need to see Serge Ibaka get back. You know, he hasn't played in, it feels like, 12 years, but really since the All-Star game. Um, and I think these are important things for them. But the Clippers are really good. Rondo's such a great fit for this team. I think it really works for them in so many ways. And for guys like, you know, Kennard, you know, getting an open look and things like that. I think Terrence Mann's improvement and attacking the paint and and, and, and being that, that paint attacker from, I don't know how many minutes he'll get in the playoffs, but like has been big for them. Getting Patrick Beverly back was, you know, a good time to get some rhythm going in the offense and, and defense, but they're just, like you said, just damn good, you know, and if PG is going to play this Reggie way. Jackson, Reggie Jackson has found his feet, right? Batum is still playing pretty solid basketball. I think Zubats is, is being overlooked. Like, I mean, there's so many things happening for the Clippers that have been good. Terrence Mann has been has has emerged and, and kind of gives that sort of mid-sized wing, you know, physicality and athleticism that often shows up as important in the playoffs. Yeah. But now the, you, you're you going to get into a minute scrunch with some of these guys, but it's a good problem to have basically is what they have. I think the chemistry is clearly there. Paul George has been really aggressive late in games attacking the basket, which I didn't didn't think he did enough of last year. So clearly he's feeling more healthy. I'm not saying the Clippers are the favorites, but I don't know. Maybe uh, we're sports betting legal. Jersey. I can bet in Jersey now. Yeah. I'm not saying that they're the favorites, but maybe, maybe, maybe there's some money to be made there. Now, the Bucks have done what we've asked them to do. They've mixed things up. They've shown versatility. They went out. They got guys. They got Drew Holiday, who's been awesome. They got P.J. Tucker, who, you know, we haven't seen enough of, but you see the fit. It pushes Giannis into that five role a little bit more often, which we all wanted. We just watched him beat the Nets. And Mo, you and I talked about this on the ding. I don't know that James Harden changes that matchup a ton. It certainly gives the, the Nets more options on offense, but their issues against the Bucs were, were on defense. So I, I like the Bucs. I Man, I think the Bucs have a really good shot of coming out of these. I'm I'm going to disagree with you on the Harden thing. I actually have a have a piece coming out. Uh, they had a piece come out today with Alex Schiffer, uh, where we kind of talked about this question, and um, I actually think Harden helps them defensively in a way because KD ha- with with him out, their offense is so much your turn, my turn, Kyrie and KD, and just having Harden out there to to table set a little bit is going to save KD a little bit more for him to have some defensive impact. And in the playoffs, in that matchup, he has to because it's like him and Nick Claxton and one or two other guys. So I think that's actually a big thing to help them. And then, you know, you mentioned Drew Holiday. He can't guard both Kyrie and James Harden on a possession. So that just is a huge swing. In that so situation. here's my pushback to all of that. One, they didn't have – they didn't put KD on Giannis a lot. And maybe they'll change that come playoff time or whatnot. They did a good job late in games kind of having him show doubles. They they really just played it one-on-one in that scenario. And they went with uh, DeAndre Jordan, Blake Griffin, Jeff Green. And, you know, maybe in a switch situation, KD would have been on him. But they they kind of stayed away from that. 
And I think that's one thing. And then to the idea of Drew Holiday is not going to be guarding both guys. No, he's not. He's going to probably just be on Kyrie. But I think that's why it was so important for Bud to get a look at how well Chris Middleton defended KD and how well Tucker did. Because when all three of those guys are on the court, you can put Tucker or or, or uh, Middleton on either of those guys and feel pretty good. You know, in that instance, like when we talk about, do you have three three guys that can defend? And then behind that, Giannis rotating, that's a that's a that's that's hard. That's tough to 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 score on in that sense. And they're not gonna. And here's something that you're not gonna stop these guys. It's just slowing them down. They're gonna get their points, but can you make it less efficient? Can you make it harder on them? Make them have to exert energy, you know, and and, and make it a hard thirty versus a, a easy walk in the park thirty. And I think that's I, I I think when you look at the Nets versus the Bucks, I think that's where that that thing. I can't wait for this 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 series like i i am literally we need this series i, I might look, not do so video i might just I have see- popcorn and sit there and just watch it like a little kid like i can't wait for this one last night i had the thought of pj tucker guarding james harden for a playoff series i look it's a mismatch physically because i think harden could probably easily drive around it but pj tucker is such a smart defender and he played with james harden forever he knows all the tricks it's a chess match. I, I, I am pumped for that in particular. Uh, and right now, we're set up to get that in the second round potentially. Yeah, I think all – I mean, obviously, it, the the second round and conference finals in the East are just are, – are, are delicious yeah. to think about. <laughs> Whatever like mix of matchups we get. But I think – you know, yeah. I just think the the, the – back to the overlooking of the Bucks. it's, you know, they weren't as dominant as they were the last two years because they experimented. Right, because they played around with things, and 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 we're trying to figure out how to get Drew Holiday involved and stuff, and and integrate him into the system and things like that. Like, you know, so I think people were like, "Oh, this isn't." They're not even look. They failed in the playoffs, and they're not as dominant. And I'm like, no, no, no. This is a good thing. The losses now, the adversity now, potentially can pay off come in the playoffs. And I think you know we're gonna people are gonna overlook them because of that and because of past history. And it's like, look, that was last season. This is even a different team. Drew Holiday's an upgrade over Eric Bledsoe. I don't think that's really controversial. I don't, you know, PJ Tucker is, you know, important. The questions for the Bucks are going to be like, you know, the other guys, can they do enough? You know, in, in that instance. But I think everybody is kind of sleeping on them. And I think it's a little bit silly in that instance. I, the thing that I like to look at, is is how a team is done over a season against the other best teams. And that's, you know, it's a little bit reductive. And actually the Bucks started this year pretty rough in those matchups. I think they were one and six or something at at at, at some point. Um and now they're they're in the last six weeks or so, they seem to have won, I don't know, every one of those matchups. They dropped the game to Phoenix, uh the the overtime game on the lat which the last second foul on uh on Devin Booker. But they've won a ton of those games recently, and they're back up to 500 against those those teams. Like they're they're, they're still a team that's just crushes the the lesser teams in the league. And um, but but being good against the top teams is the kind of thing that is a good indicator towards the playoffs. And you know, after this last little run, that's in place, and it, it wasn't before. And I don't think we've quite realized how well they've done against top teams in the I last mean, even- month. They were one of the few lucky teams. They got to play the Nets when all three guys were available. 
you know, back in January, and that game went down to the wire. I mean, it was just, you know, they lost, but it was just that went down to the final possession situation. So, you know, like, I like their chances against the uh, the the Nets, to be honest. Like, I look at it and, you know, I, I just think there's still a lot of questions with the Nets. So it's like, we might look back at the second round and be like, damn. This could be I, one of the greatest second rounds of NBA playoffs ever. I mean, there are no favorites to me right now. Philly, because Philly of versus Atlanta or, or, or New York. I, I don't know. I don't <laughs> okay, know. All right. All right. But we're going to have <laughs> let, let, the other let me series. Try a theory awesome. on, <laughs> let, me, let me try a theory on for I, I, Mo's going to disagree with me on this. I know. But th- this is how I've kind of looked at the East is I is I think that those three teams are, are kind of rock, paper, scissors. Okay. I think Milwaukee has the edge on Philly. I think Philly has the edge on Brooklyn. I think Brooklyn, not huge. I think, and I think Brooklyn has the edge on Milwaukee, and so it just—that's why seating is going to be so, so important. That's, uh, for me, that's kind of been my indicator: was whoever finished one in the East is probably who I'm going to pick to get out of the uh, the conference because it's a little bit of an easier road. Yeah, not just the one less, one easier series. But you also in the in the fi- conference finals, you probably get the team you have the advantage. Against. Yeah, well, I mean, you have the. T- I mean. What you're hoping for is like if you're, you're like yo, I hope that series goes seven and fifteen overtimes in Game Seven. Like you're just like, <laughs> I, we need this team utterly exhausted to come in. I mean, I think that's kind of the such a big deal, and I think that would be the case with any combination of those three teams facing each other in the second round. So what you guys are saying is that the regular season actually matters. It always did, Dave. Weird. It always did. Weird. Uh, okay, as we wrap up. Uh, let's look ahead. I'm going to go first this time because I, I, you guys steal my stuff and then I have to make up something new on the spot. So the thing I'm watching for the next week is obviously just like everybody else. I'm watching the playoff races, but I'm actually watching the Raptors because I think the Raptors are going to catch either the Wizards or the Pacers and they're going to make the play in. And I just would not want to play against that team. They are, they are the best worst team in history. They They are bad, but they're good. And I just don't think that I would want to be the team playing against them in a playing I, game. That, that just doesn't sound I fun. love that. Shout out to Carleton College's finest, Freddie Gillespie. See, the second <laughs> week you referenced this, second or second time this week, I heard you on no dunks cheating on us. Um, <laughs> but what's funnier about <laughs> Dave picking Toronto is we record on Thursday, so this come out Friday. Well, Toronto and Washington plays tonight. So he's either going to look really smart or it's going to be pretty much like, yo, <laughs> that's, that's a tough situation. Yeah, it's fine. Them. I'm going to stay in the, the, the playing picture area and I'm going to stay into the the six seven in the East with Boston and Miami tied. I'm going to st- – when you look at the West, five, six, and seven separated by half a game, you know, between Dallas, Los Angeles, the Lakers, excuse me, and, and the Blazers. Like it's going to be fun to watch that. So I'm just going to stay locked into that – the upper half of the playing tournament. You mentioned Boston and Miami fighting for the sixth seed. Well, the Bucks are a game behind Brooklyn for the two seed as we're recording this on Thursday afternoon. Uh, a potential Bucks Heat first round series would be. Would that be stressful to watch for me? I don't know. I feel like I would be watching it the whole time, just hoping that the Bucks at least don't lose in six games. Like if you lose, lose in seven, I guess. I don't know. That would be – there's a lot of good narrative matchups 
uh, in this don't year's sleep playoffs. on Boston uh, being a little bit tough. Also, I mean, I know they haven't looked good, but don't sleep on it. Can Rob can Robert Williams guard Giannis? Do we know? Nobody can really guard Giannis. <laughs> what are we talking about? <laughs> yeah. All right, Seth. What are you What are you looking uh, looking ahead to this week? I don't know. I have I have I have so much more free time now because uh, I, uh, I I finished my book. The yesterday, book is done. So. Yeah, so um, it, it'll come back to me with edits at some point, but uh, I don't know what to do with my hands now. So <laughs> uh, you can watch basketball, but I don't know if you can watch basketball with your hands. Uh, that's going to do it for this week, folks. We'll be back next week with another episode of Nerd She Wrote right here on the Athletic NBA Show. Thank you guys for listening. For Seth, well, I'm Dave. Until then. Hopefully there wasn't too much background. Hopefully.